Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, an interview with a key figure in the botched U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, a high-ranking military officer who spoke out on social media to demand accountability from his superiors and got court-martialed for it. Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller of the Marines did something very controversial, something that broke the rules. As the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan went from bad to worse, he posted a series of social media videos demanding accountability from his superiors and top political figures. That accountability, by the way, never came. Well, let me rephrase that. Scheller was held accountable for breaking military rules by speaking out the way he did. Nobody else was held accountable for the loss of U.S. and Afghan lives and for poor strategy and poor decision-making. Sunday on Full Measure, January 24th, I interview Scheller, who was jailed and court-martialed and is now out of the military. I hope you'll watch the interview. In the meantime, here is some of it to listen to. Prior to the controversy, what would you say, in just a paragraph, is the story of Mr. Scheller? Prior to the controversy, Stu Scheller was an infantry officer. He had served for 17 years, and he was a father, a husband, serving his country. Um, in the big picture with what's happened since, and then we'll dig into it, but if you're writing a book on this, and you may, um, what would the flap say? It, that this is a story of what? How Americans lost trust and confidence in the generals and politicians. Okay. Um, so I guess just take me to the moment that you heard about or realized what was happening in Afghanistan and thought it was a huge mistake and your thought process as you decided you were going to do something? Well, it didn't happen immediately. This is something that through my deployments and my experiences that I started developing thoughts, questioning certain things. I went to school, thought about it, read about it, wrote about it, continued to question things. Can and then, you elaborate just a little bit on that, like yeah. prior to the Afghanistan mess? So uh, one story in Ramadi as a lieutenant, I was a pay agent. So my company commander would write contracts, and I would get a backpack full of, one time I had $200,000 cash. And I remember walking around Ramadi and just handing out money and thinking, there's got to be a more effective way to fight this war than what we're doing right now because the money was going to just no other way to describe it other than mafia types that I felt like weren't going to use it to build the infrastructure and stability that we wanted. In fact, it might actually exacerbate and make it worse. So I was looking at that. I was questioning it. My experiences in Afghanistan, the home bases in Pakistan that I could see 
And it was like, do we really want to win this on the strategic and operational level? Because I'm out here fighting every single day and winning these tactical battles, but obviously we're not going to defeat the Taliban if we allow a home base right in Pakistan. So do, do my senior leaders not understand, or maybe I don't understand? And then I went to command and staff college, and I got a master's in military science, and I focused my thesis on foreign diplomacy. And I think the different government agencies do it very ineffectively. So most people don't realize the military divides up the globe into combatant commands, but like the Department of State divides up the globe too, but they're not the same maps. Department of Intelligence divides up the globe too, and it's not the same maps. And so what it leads to is this haphazard interagency work that's highly ineffective. The DOD has this huge budget compared to like the Department of State, so everything is a military solution just because they have the assets and the resources. And so I'm struggling with all that. I'm thinking about all that. And then in the Afghanistan withdrawal, I watched Bagram Air Base get abandoned. And I've been to Bagram Air Base. I understand the importance of that base. And when we just abandoned it, I was like, man, they must know something I don't. But immediately I was like, just from a tactical standpoint, that didn't make sense. Where were you physically that I day? Was, uh, at a, I was a... Actually, I moved from regimental operations officer to a battalion commander as it was playing out. So, like, in April-ish when the withdrawal started, in the early stages of it, I was still a regimental operations officer. And actually, I, as the higher headquarters, sent out on deployment through training and qualifications the unit that ended up getting attacked, 1-8. So they were part of our regiment. So I was the higher headquarters operations officer. I knew all the people in that unit intimately. That was also my first unit. When I was in Ramadi, I was with 1-8, and my best friend had got hit with a suicide vest attack. I'm sorry, where were you physically? I should know that, but I don't know how the arrangement yep. happens. Uh, so it, I, for, as a regimental operations officer and as the battalion commander, I was both in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, so just above Wilmington and Jacksonville, North Carolina. Okay, continue. So after we left Bagram, I was upset. And then obviously in the two weeks leading up to the attack on August 26th, it just rapidly became deteriorating and where the Taliban was advancing, taking cities, no no pressure applied on them. And I was watching it real time in the news on social media and I'm sitting there as a battalion commander watching it. And then a week before the attack, the commandant of the Marine Corps released a white letter addressing everyone getting upset because it was national news and everyone was getting upset. And he said, go talk to a therapist if you need to see counseling, but your sacrifices were worth it. And again, I don't feel like he addressed the breakdowns at the operational and strategic levels. And I, almost, I, didn't, I still don't know if he just didn't understand or if he didn't care. But in my opinion, he had misdiagnosed the problem. So that happened. And then on August 26th, I was sitting in my office in Jacksonville, North Carolina, as a battalion commander. And the attacks happened. And in my small groups of people, people were texting me pictures of the people that had died. You know, I knew the company commander. We had worked together at the basic school. That was all his Marines that got attacked. And I just got to a point where I knew no one was going to be held accountable. Again, I felt like senior leaders were misdiagnosing the problem. The plan was horrible. Could have been better. It wasn't done out of negligence, but it was done out of, well, here's the restraints that the president put on the plan, and nobody had the courage to push back. No one had the leadership to convince him of why we needed more troops. And at no point was I saying we needed to stay in Afghanistan forever. Quite honestly, I think we should have pulled out much earlier. But once we devoted as much as we did over two decades, we deserved to have a sound plan to pull everybody out and not leave people stranded in the manner that we did. 
So I made a video essentially addressing that. I mean, I articulated in the video that... Wait, stop there. All right. What is the thought process? Lieutenant Colonels, that's, in my book, that's a high rank. Mm -hmm. It's not a low-level person. And I think I've heard you say you knew there'd be some consequence. You weren't sure what it would be exactly. But please take me inside the thought process where you're thinking, I got to do something and how it turned into a video. So there are processes in the Marine Corps that I could have used. Request mass, IG complaint, talk to your boss, write an article in a publication. But I knew all the processes, the formal processes, would have stopped me short of getting any attention to the problem. I knew writing an article, I've seen so many articles addressing these failures in our professional publications, and the problem is there's no action. There's no one doing anything about it. And so I felt like by publicly using my rank and my title, that it would create the reaction that I got. So I anticipated it, the good and the bad, but it started a conversation. And and to me, it was taking action. And so I didn't want to just ask people. I wanted to take action. I I wanted this topic to be publicly addressed. And so? And so, you know, one of the fears when I made the video was, you know, because I'm calculating all these things, I could have made the video and posted it and nobody would have liked it or shared it and then my boss still would have seen it and then I still would have gotten fired and I would have ultimately failed, right? So I was thinking through that, like, what if nobody cares about this video and now I throw my whole career away for nothing? So the video took off uh, much bigger than I could have ever imagined. Where did you post it and did you hit the send button yourself or were you working with somebody else that was helping you? No, nobody was helping me on this at all through the whole thing. Everyone feels like I had this like team of people mentoring, influencing, like everything that was said or done or built or wrote was me. And I had two social media platforms. I had Facebook and LinkedIn. And the truth is most military officers don't have social media. They're anti-social media and they know you can get in trouble if you use social media. So they just don't have social media. And there's policies in place that if any officer makes any statement on a social media, it can be construed as his formal military position. So, therefore, no one has social media. And so I was one of those officers. I went through up to 2018 without any social media because of that. Like, all my deployments didn't have a single social media account. So all of a sudden, you know, after being in the Marine Corps for 15 years, I surfaced on social media. And the reason was because I had launched a business as a major. And so I created a product, I patented it, and I was trying to sell it. And to do that, I needed some social media platforms. So I created a Facebook and LinkedIn, and the product was a military product. It was sold in military stores. And so the followership that I gained was all military personnel. And so on my Facebook and LinkedIn, I had a couple thousand that were all in the demographic that would relate to this video. And it was really just enough of a base to light the fire that was the video that I posted. So... Yes, I posted it to Facebook and LinkedIn, and when I made it, absolutely, I made the video, and it was on my phone, and I still was like, I, this, this is a lot. I don't know if I can post this. So I drove home. You know, you're staring at your house. Your wife and your kids are in there, and I get out of the truck, and, I, and there's a sidewalk in front of my house, and I just walked up and down the sidewalk looking like a post away, and um, I, I ultimately hit post. Did your wife know you were going to do that? No. So I got in the house, and I walked upstairs, and it only took about 20 minutes, and we were sitting in the bedroom together, and then she started getting text messages. And she's like, did you, did you post a video? I was like, I did. 
like, you should probably watch it. So she watched it, and, you know, her first reaction was, you need to take it down. Like, and she started feeling the weight of what was about to happen. And I said, even if I took it down at this point, you can't put the lid back on the bottle. And the truth is, babe, like, I feel very strongly about this. Like, I didn't irrationally do this. this you weren't like, immediately sorry or anything like that. I mean, there's a lot of emotions. This isn't binary. So, like, no one wants to put their family through that, right? Um, so I sympathized with her trepidation. But at the end of the day, this was a choice I made, and I stood behind the choice. And so we had that discussion. And after the first video, she knew her life was changing, and she was reacting to it. And she, was, she had to actually take her social media video uh, pages down because – Everyone was trying to contact her and figure her out. And so it was just a lot of scrutiny immediately. And so we worked through that together. So take me from that time to, I think I heard you say, you knew there'd be consequences, but not what they tried to throw at you initially. What I thought was going to happen was they would pull me in, they would sit me down and say, hey, you can't do this, you broke the rules. You used your rank and title and you were in camis it's, it's improper and I knew that and they and I thought they'd say take some time off there's going to be an investigation following an investigation we'll sit you down and talk about the results of that investigation which is the proper way to do that and that is essentially what happened when I came into work the next day my boss said that like hey there's going to be an investigation go home and I'll call you on Monday and we'll reevaluate and turn, turn over the battalion to the XO so I said okay sir thank you turn the battalion over to the XO went home but then two hours later my boss called me back into work, and he just relieved me. And he didn't explain why he did a 180, and I didn't ask. I assumed the generals all the way up to the commandant's office was just getting such pressure that they said he's got to be relieved immediately. No investigation, just get rid of him. But even then, I was like, you know, I knew I'd probably be relieved, and so I still wasn't angry, and I still didn't plan on making any more statements against the system. And I made a post after I was relieved that just, you can go back and look at it, it's still on there, it said, Thank you, Marine Corps. My command is doing exactly what I would have done. I appreciate the opportunity. I look forward to the next chapter. But what I didn't say in that post was my boss had had a conversation with me, and I think the, the obvious question is like, well, what, what now? And he's like, well, you're not going to work here anymore. You're probably going to go up to Quantico, and then they'll pursue legal action. He said, the General Alfred will probably try to take care of you, so we'll, we'll hope to try and keep your retirement and let you stay till 20 years. So I knew in my head... Best case, I'd probably be NJP'd and I'd work in a cubicle. What's NJP'd? Yeah, sorry. Sorry. It's like the lowest level of formal punishment. It's called non judicial, non -judicial punishment. Oh, punishment. So it doesn't go to court martial. It's essentially just your commanding officer putting formal paperwork in your book that says you did something that wasn't upholding the standards. As a career standpoint, as soon as they relieved me, it was over. So any legal action after that really only affected my discharge but didn't affect my career because my career was already over. So the threat of it was okay. So he told me there'd be legal action and that I'd go to Quantico. And so I was just thinking through, do I want to limp for three years towards retirement just trying to keep my head down? And I didn't know if I could live my life like that. So I was struggling with that. But I knew my family probably deserved the retirement. And so I kind of had made peace with this is the way. I got to man up to the decisions that I made. Well, then after that, I had 
former bosses get on my social media and state if Stuart Scheller was honorable, he would resign. And that's really where I started getting angry for the first time. Like, I was angry because I felt like they didn't do an investigation. They just relieved me. They're trying to shuffle me out. And now I have previous bosses that didn't identify themselves as previous bosses. Like, if he cared about me, he would have called me. He has my phone number. He did call me later. He would have emailed me, but he got on my social media to publicly shame me. So then I started thinking, maybe they don't care about me as much as I care about them. And that's at that point where I came to the decision that I'm going to resign. I'm not going to let them run me out because my message was important enough that I feel like I should be getting treated a little bit differently. So that's when I made the second video. And the second video was very emotional. I didn't take multiple takes. It was like Jay-Z one cut release post. And if I could go back, that's the one video that I maybe would have said different things. After a short break, find out what Scheller said in that video and what he wishes he hadn't. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places, and you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We're back talking to former Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. What did you say in that video? I said at the end of it, well, ultimately, if you read the first part of it was all very accurate. I talked about, hey, I demanded accountability. None of you addressed accountability. If you would have just said, yeah, there was mistakes made, I would have been quiet and gone back in rank and file. But none of you addressed that, and you've attacked me. You've fired me. You've tried to publicly shame me and demanding my resignation. So here's my resignation. Like, I don't want any retirement. I don't need your retirement. This isn't about retirement. And then I, at the end of it, I started talking about how the system was corrupt. It was centralizing control. And I said, I'm going to bring your whole effing system down. And that statement right there just caused everyone to lose context of everything else. And then it just it started snowballing into me getting painted in the media as a violent extremist because I said, I'm going to bring your effing system down. So if I could go back, I would change that verbiage. But the content of everything else in there stands. And it was just one of those, I, I mean, you've got to understand the weight of the situation. I was making a second video knowing that my marriage would probably fall apart because I didn't tell her I was making the second video. I knew I was giving up my retirement. I knew I was giving up my life. And the, just the weight of that situation, I don't know if anyone has ever experienced something like that. I mean, that was traumatic. It was not easy to navigate in the correct way. Much easier for people to pick apart on the aftermath without fully appreciating the weight of that situation. What happened after that? After the second video is where it became a quick escalating series of events between the Marine Corps and myself. Then the Marine Corps started shaming me publicly. They, that night, released a message that said, we're trying to locate Lieutenant Colonel Scheller to ensure he's not a threat to himself or his family. They didn't call me. So I perceived that as, well, if you didn't call me, you're not really trying to locate me. You're just trying to send a message to the American people that I'm crazy. I came in the next day and they ordered a mental health evaluation. I was upset about that because... I've been through so much in the military, and they've never made me do a mental health evaluation. And as soon as I said I'm resigning and that the system's corrupt, now my mental health is under question. I went in there, and 
the doctors just looked at me and realized that there was nothing to it and let me go. But then after that, it was like I was mad, they were mad. I knew there was no reconciling the relationship. I submitted my resignation. They kicked it back and said, no, you're on legal hold. You can't resign. And they kept giving me count, formal counseling saying, you've broken the rules. And so I made two more videos. Uh, the fourth one culminated with me in uniform again saying, General McKenzie, the combatant commander, has failed. Like, I'm going to prefer legal charges against him, which is my legal right to do so. And then there was media articles that came out and said, Stuart Schiller can't do that. I mean, it's like, factually, you can look in the manual for court-martial. Like, it says it very clearly. And so the tactical maneuver there was I was going to prefer charges. I can't refer charges because I don't have general court-martial authority. What's the difference for people who don't yep. know? So a officer, it's usually at the general officer level, but in some 06s have it. If they have general court-martial authority, they can refer charges to someone to go to court-martial. Any other service member can write up a charge sheet and prefer, meaning they route that charge sheet up to the officer that has court-martial authority. Hoping they will take that That's into right. account and refer. And it's clearly stated in the manual for court-martial. And my thought process, like, I'm, I'm a smart guy. I was calculating all this. I was like, they're not going to refer charges against General McKenzie, but what it's going to do is the two-star that's relieving me and coming after me and holding me accountable. It's going to make him publicly declare that he's not going to refer charges against General McKenzie. And he is also a smart guy, and he saw that maneuver, and so he denied my legal right to prefer charges, which to me, and again, I was like getting more angry. I was like, how does the rules only apply to me and no one else? Like, the rule clearly states I have this right. And so... Then they gave me a gag order also after that fourth video, and I thought the gag order was illegal. You know, there's, a, there's probably something from a military sense where they could say, you can't post on social media anything disparaging about the military. Like, that makes sense to me by the rules and by what I was doing. But, like, to say I can't post a picture of my family, it's illegal, that, I started to question that. And then the gag order goes on further, and it was like, you can't say anything through a third party about anything. I was just like, this, is, this seems wrong. And so I formally requested, it's called uh, request redress, because I told them, I was like, I think this is illegal. And they're like, well, that is what it is. And I was like, well, I want you to formally state that why it's legal. And they're like, we don't have to do that. So I gave them formal cor correspondence that made them address it, and they just said, bottom line is it's legal. Deal with it. And so then... I was mad. I couldn't prefer charges. I couldn't speak in any forum. And I knew, so this is going into the weekend, now a week later, that the general officers were, were going to do congressional testimony with the House and the Senate on a Tuesday, Wednesday, respectively, of the next week. And so I thought, well, I'm going to challenge your gag order, and I'm going to make a, a post. And that was probably my most insightful post, where I, I just basically attacked a lot of people but I said true things. I didn't say anything that was untrue, but a lot of it was hard to hear, and it was designed to create a reaction. And so I posted that, violating the gag order, and, in, and I said in the post, I'm ready to go to jail, and, and I quoted the gag order. I was like, this is illegal. And I, again, was reading the manual for court-martial, and I knew that I had to be a flight risk and lesser forms of restraint needed to be used to imprison me, so I honestly didn't think that they had the legal capability to put me in prison. Then I showed up at work that Monday, and sure enough, they put me in jail. And I understand the thought process. Like, I was not listening to the escalation of 
administrative action that they were sanctioning against me. But according to the rules, I needed to be a flight risk. And so they put on the document that I was a flight risk, which was blatantly false. Like I showed up at work at 8 o'clock that Monday. I'd been showing up to work every other day. There was no evidence of flight risk. So I felt like they lied again. They, when they put me in the brig, they're supposed to drop you off with this whole inventory list of items. They didn't do that. So, like, I didn't have, like, underwear or socks or a toothbrush for, like, five days. I had to formally request a complaint in jail five days later. Like, I get it. I'm a little bit different. But, like, why am I not afforded the same items? So then they had to bring those items, like, five days later. Did you have a lawyer by now? Yeah, I had a lawyer. My lawyer paired up with me um, in between the second and third video. So I didn't want a lawyer. So, like, through the first and second video, the military counsel came and tried to advise me, and I was just like, get out of my office. I don't want to talk to you. Like, I don't want to talk to any of you. I'm just like, I'm mad. Like, my message is right. I don't care about what the rules say. So it took probably a month into this until I actually got legal representation. Finally, it came to a point where I had to get legal representation, and so I found some civilian attorneys. But for the first half of it, I didn't have any legal representation. I was Now, they, they sought me out, but I just was like, no, like, I'm just going to keep saying the truth, and we'll just see what happens. I, and in my head, I was even like, I might represent myself, but ultimately, I didn't go that route. And then what? So then when I was in jail, they offered me a legal deal that stated if you plead guilty to six, no, sorry, five charges at special court-martial, we'll let you out of jail, you can get a honorable or a general under honorable, and then you have to resign and give up your retirement. So the the biggest hardest part of that was the retirement. But again, this was never about money for me. I'd already declared early on that I didn't care about my retirement. And I meant that. And I also felt like it wasn't people get hung up on like the verbiage of each order. You don't go through each order and say, well, am I guilty of this? Am I guilty of that? You either plead guilty to everything that they just hand you and take the deal, or you plead not guilty to everything they hand you and then try and beat it all at general court martial. So it's not you don't go through it with a fine-tooth comb. You just look at it on the surface. The choice was guilty to everything they hand you at special or not guilty to everything they handed you at general. And I had felt like I had broken the rules. Like From the beginning, I knew I had broken some of the rules. But it, it's not I broke the rules to highlight an issue that I thought was bigger than that. And so, yes, did I break the rules? I did. What I was trying to get was them to address this bigger problem that affected more people. You know, you're never going to bring back the 13 service members that got killed, but you can prevent placing members in bad situations in the future by addressing these things through open and transparent conversation. So I thought if I said not guilty to any of them and tried to beat it to keep my retirement, and then let, let's say I beat it based on the undue command influence or, or whatever the legal arguments I presented – it might take away from me showing what accountability looks like and negate the whole purpose of the endeavor. So I decided to plead guilty, and I got out of jail by signing the deal, and then within five days, which is like the fastest in the military history in terms of jail to court-martial, they had me court-martialed, and then we submitted my resignation, and then it took from the end of October till Christmas Eve to get me discharged. How many days were you in jail? Nine. How much time between the first video and the fifth video? I only made four. Four, sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, I posted the first one on August 26th, and I posted the next one where I wanted to resign like two days later. And then I posted the third one maybe a week later, 
And then I posted the fourth one maybe like a week after that. So they all happened within two or three weeks. What's life been like since you got out of jail and the military? Well, getting out of the military, I mean, it's January 12th, right? I've been out of the military since December 24th, and I've been on a gag order this whole time. So all I've been doing, I spent Christmas with my family, and then I've been doing media. So the reality of my situation hasn't fully set in. So ask me again in March when I'm sitting on my couch with nothing to do, what it's like. So it's been kind of an, an alternate reality. Yeah. Are you satisfied with the result you got in the end? It's not the end. So I think the fight, what I could do within the military hit a culmination point, And it was time for me to exit for a lot of reasons. I mean, I couldn't even go on base without this extreme polarization where, like, Marines wanted to hug me and take pictures at the gate, the gate guards, the young enlisted. And then I'd go into my office with the field grades, and they just had clear contempt written all over their faces. So I couldn't go into a room without polarizing the room. So even if we all were to make amends, I don't think me being there was healthy. Like, the divide was way too deep in the military. So it was time for me to exit the military. I would have liked an honorable discharge, I think, by the orders governing it. I deserved it. There was even, like, some nefarious play there at the end. I submitted a letter for my justifying my honorable, and they didn't send it. And then I requested MAST to try and address why they didn't send it, and they refused to. What's requesting MAST? It's another formal process where you demand an audience with the general. And so the general usually gives you a face-to-face. He wouldn't give me the face-to-face, and he just gave me a piece of paper that said, because you're going through a discharge, I don't have to discuss this. And I was like, well, the, re- the request is about my discharge. So, like, you're saying I can't discuss this in any legal form. And it goes back to my point of all these people were like, why didn't you go through the processes? Some of them just don't work. Um, so you said this is not the end. What's yet to come? I was real disappointed. I overestimated Congress's ability to make change. So like I said, I baited my command to send me to jail to give Congress leverage to bring up conversations in the generals, and that, was, that worked. You know, Senator Cotton was asking the SecDef about me. I mean, there was people that were, were using my situation to illustrate the hypocrisy. But then after there were sound bites of anger, nothing happened. And me understanding how our three branches of government work, Congress is the strongest branch of government, and they have the ability to influence, really set, not influence, like they they control completely the DOD budget. And six days previous to their testimony, the House approved $740 billion of the DOD budget for fiscal year 22, and, and the Senate went on to do the same thing. So those people that demanded accountability and were very angry in their sound bites of anger didn't have the courage to say, all right, you want $740 billion next year. Well, let's talk about accountability. Let's talk about metrics of effectiveness from the 21 budget because that would require courage and that would require them potentially being painted as against the military. And so when I saw that, it just rang false. And so when I got out, I thought, you know, at this point, I'm very passionate about foreign diplomacy, about American strength. And I think we need people that hold the military accountable. The military is not holding itself accountable. I, as an officer, was able to affect limited change. I maybe sparked a conversation, but ultimately none of them have been held accountable yet. So the way to do that, quite honestly, is through politics in some form or fashion. And so that's, like I said, it's not over yet. I'm going to spend my life ensuring that we change the system. So going back to that one statement where I said, I wish I would have changed bringing your whole effing system down, Ultimately, what I meant was there are fundamental problems with the system that need to be changed, and I'm still fully committed to making that happen. And can you give an example of how you can do that? 
I think electing my bumper stickers, we need leaders, not politicians. Electing people that would have stood against the DOD budget. Electing people that aren't just beholden to one political ideology, a dogma that maybe prevents some of these systemic problems that are facing the United States. I mean, look at the problems. Like, our national debt can't be addressed because both sides can't come to an agreement. Both sides have different agendas. The immigration, legal immigration, we can't address it because both sides have opinions and can't come to a consensus. And I could go on and on, military failing. And so I think we just need leaders that can not necessarily just vote along a party line, but have independent thought and do what's in the best interest of America and not what's best interest of a political party. So I feel very strongly about that. And I think through the 22 election cycle, I can influence it. So I've gotten a coalition of five senators and 20 congressional candidates that I've identified have leadership qualities, most of them from veteran backgrounds, that I plan to support and try to get five or six votes out of that to start working our way in with the leadership that we need and then continuing to build and influence from from that. Former Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, who says he might run for Congress in 2024. Watch the interview Sunday on Full Measure, January 24th, you can find a list of TV stations to watch by going to CherylAckeson.com. Click the Full Measure tab and there's a list there. If you don't have a station near you or if it's easier, you can always watch online at FullMeasure.News. FullMeasure.News. It's live at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Sundays there. But also we post the segments at the website FullMeasure.News. Around 11 a.m. Eastern Time, after it's been broadcast to most of our 43 million U.S. TV households. You can also watch it live or on demand by downloading our free app called STIRR, S-T-I-R-R. A lot of other cool programming on STIRR, all for free, including entertainment and movies and local news. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to visit CherylAckeson.com and the new store under the store tab at CherylAckeson.com for products that will help you support independent journalism and put a smile on your face and show people where you stand as an independent thinker. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.